So what is it like to be around Christian leaders who use their influence for the glory of God and the good of others? In the Lord's kindness, I've experienced several godly men who have used their influence for God's kingdom. One of those men was a guy named Robbie, whom I believe without him, I probably wouldn't be standing in this pulpit today. You see, I met Robbie when I was a young Christian living in Memphis, Tennessee. He served as the young adults pastor at the first church that I became a member of. And I remember the first time that we sat across the table from one another at a dinner. I started to express, I think for the very first time, my desire to preach the gospel. You see, this was a critical moment in my path to becoming a pastor. Was he going to use his influence? Was he going to use his authority to help me discern my calling? Or would he try to snuff that desire out? Because he might have wanted to protect his own job. Or he didn't want to lose influence in the church. You see, I was vulnerable looking to this leader for guidance. But how would he respond? Well, the brother used his influence not for his own selfish gain, but for my good. He started discipling me, giving me multiple opportunities to teach, and ultimately recommending me for his own job as the young adult's pastor. What is it like to be around Christian leaders who use their influence for the glory of God and the good of others? It's life-giving, it blesses others, and it helps advance the kingdom of God. And this is precisely what Paul shows us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, where he continues to defend his time in Thessalonica. Well, how did Paul steward his apostolic leadership when he came in town preaching the gospel? Well, we're going to see it wasn't for his own selfish gain. No, it was for the good of others that the glory of God might continue to advance in the world. Now, many of you, after hearing that, might be saying to yourself, and this is the moment where I check out. You see, I'm not a Christian leader. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a social media influencer for the Lord. What am I supposed to take away from this? Well, brothers and sisters, whether you know it or not, you have influence. You have influence in your homes. You have influence in your neighborhoods. You have influence in your jobs. You have influence here at the church. And the reality is that we're there, we are either stewarding that influence for our own good or the good of others. And I pray that Paul would remind us of that very influence that we have and the necessity to steward that influence, not for our own gain, but again, for the good of others. So if you have God's word, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians and stand for the reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then we will end in verse 6. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. Well, I have two points coming from the text this morning. We're going to see Paul's apostolic authority and Paul's apostolic aim. So Paul's apostolic authority and apostolic aim. But before we get into the first point, I just want to give us a quick reminder of the background. You see, Paul planted the church on his second missionary journey, but he was forced to leave shortly after. You see, commentators debate on how long he was there. Was he there for six months? Was he there for six weeks? People debate this, but everyone agree, everyone would agree that he was there for a short time. So he was forced to depart, and when he was forced to depart, he was very worried about this church. And so he was hindered from going, but he sends Timothy to go check up on this church. And so Paul reunites with Timothy in Corinth to bring him the good news of what? That they're standing firm in the Lord. And so upon Paul hearing that, he then pins this letter. And in the first chapter, we see him well up with great gratitude. Why? Because of their reception to the gospel. And so after his prayer of thanksgiving, he then moves into chapter two to give a type of defense for his conduct before he left. Why does Paul go immediately from a prayer of thanksgiving to then just a, um, a defense of his conduct? Well, as we talked about last week, I don't think that there was opposition from inside of the church. And I also don't think there was really opposition from the outside of the church either. It seems like Paul's sudden departure was reason enough for him to write this section. He wants to clear the air. He wants to defend his reputation. But even more than that, he wants to put himself as a moral example so this church might continue in the faith. So Paul starts this defense by talking about his arrival in the city. And we saw that in verses 1 through 3. And next he moves in verse 4 to present his credentials to partake in this gospel ministry. Look with me at verse 4. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. It was the summer after my freshman year in college, and two of my friends had this fantastic idea to drive to Birmingham, Alabama to go to SEC Football Media Day. And so if y'all don't know about SEC Football Media Day, it's where the coaches kind of gather together to all talk about the upcoming season. It never even crossed our minds when we were going there. Will they even let us in? We didn't even think about that. We just went. And so after two and a half hours, we finally got there and we headed up the escalator to the media day. We took one step off the escalator only to meet a random guy that was asking for our media credentials. Sadly, our next step was back on the escalator to descend in shame and humiliation. Well, in verse 4, it is like Paul, in his defense, is anticipating this random man not asking about his media credentials, but his evangelistic credentials. Why were you able to come in Thessalonica preaching the gospel? Well, Paul tells the church in verse 4, he starts off with, instead. 
He uses the word instead because he's contrasting what he wrote in verse 3. Instead of someone whose message was false, motives impure, and methods deceptive, instead of that negative picture, we have been approved by God. And so I want to stop and talk about the phrase, we have been approved by God. First, when he uses the word we, I think he's actually using the royal we. And what that means is he says we, but he's really talking about just himself. And we see that in verse 7, a couple verses down, when he says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle. Paul was the only apostle in his entourage, and he uses the royal we. He says we, but he's really referring to himself. So we have been approved by God. What does that mean? Well, Paul calls churches to examine and improve and approve leaders in different places in Scripture. But Paul right here is not pointing horizontally for an affirmation of his credentials. It wasn't the church of Jerusalem or Galatia who tested and approved Paul. No, what does the text say? Approved by who? Approved by God Almighty himself. Just Instead, just as we have been approved by God. And I want to say the Greek word approved is in the perfect tense. And what that means is Paul had already been tested. He already had been approved. It's like God had already placed his seal of approval on Paul's ministry. In talking about the word approved, John Stott said this. He said, more simply still, it means to test and find genuine. And it was used of both coins and people. Now, I do want to say that I'm not exactly sure when and where this approval took place. I don't know where Paul was tested. Nobody knows. It's pure speculation. But what we do know from this verse, that he was tested and he was approved. Well, God Almighty approved Paul for what? What does the next phrase say? Verse 4 goes on to say, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Again, Paul's credentials didn't come from himself. He didn't make a fake ID that said preacher of the gospel. He wasn't preaching on his own authority. No, God gave him that very authority. God entrusted him with the gospel. Paul says this very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He says this. He says that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. He entrusted to me. He appointed me to the ministry. And just think for a second about the apostle Paul. He was a man appointed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, a man that planted churches in Asia and Europe, a man that wrote the majority of our New Testament. Paul was a man approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. He gave his life to this apostolic call, and that fruit is still being birthed even today. Well, Christ Fellowship, I want to ask you this question this morning. If God tested you, would he find you genuine? Would you be approved and entrusted with the gospel? There's probably many people in here who are sitting in their seats thinking to themselves right now, you know, Bryce, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't really feel approved right now. 
Well, Christ Fellowship, I want you to hear me when I say that God has approved you. It's like he's spoken from heaven, looked at you, and said approved and entrusted with the gospel. You might be wondering, I didn't hear that. Do you have it on recording? Can you play it back for me? Well, I can't do that, but I think I can give you something better. I can talk about church membership. Well, in Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to those who profess the gospel. That is the church. And what's the function of those keys? Well, one part is to bring members into the church. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Jesus is saying that the church is speaking on behalf of heaven. They are telling God's words to the world. Well, what are they claiming? Well, they're declaring who's a Christian, who has been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. And how do they do that very thing? Well, it's the church in a way that tests and approved. Only those who have a credible profession of faith are voted in as members. What that means is those who know the gospel and their very lives reflect the gospel they profess. And this approval happens when Christ Fellowship or any gospel-preaching church declares you a member. It's like Jesus speaks from heaven through the church. And if you're a member of this church or any gospel-preaching church, you can say, like Paul, man, I've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now, it's not in an apostolic sense, but as a soldier of Christ, approved and equipped to take the gospel to the nations. And I do want to say that the church never makes someone a member. Please hear me when I say that. The church never, ever does. No, what they do is they recognize God's people. But it must be done, and it must be done through testing. And in becoming a member here at Christ Fellowship, it's like God has tested you. And you can have the utmost confidence that, again, you have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. That is such great news. And I think that gives us so much confidence in going and proclaiming the gospel. All right, so what should our response be to this authoritative approval? We'll look at the text. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, what's the next phrase? So we speak. You see, it's this natural overflow, an evident and necessary response. Approved and entrusted, so we speak. Well, you're a mechanic, so you fix cars. You're a barista, so you make lattes. You're a clown, so you scare kids. It's what you do. We have been approved and entrusted by the gospel, so what do we do? We speak. I was reminded the other day of the first missionary sent out by Jesus in the gospels. I mean, if you think about it for a second, the very first missionary that Jesus sends, like this guy had to be a stud, right? He had to be converted at a young age, probably had little to no struggles in his past. He had to have a theological library that rivaled Peter's. Like if you think of the very first missionary, this guy had to be amazing. Well, we actually read about the very first missionary, and that was in Mark 5. And that's actually the very opposite right? What was this man? Well, this man was an outcast. This man was demon-possessed. He was shackled outside the city, crying out night and day, cutting himself. But what happened to him? 
oh, Jesus saved this man. He freed him of his demonic oppression. And when Jesus was set to depart, this man begged to follow him. But Jesus says, and I'll repeat it, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Well, the final verse says, so he went out and began to proclaim what Jesus had done for him. That's the first missionary ever sent out. And brothers and sisters, I want to say that nothing in your past disqualifies you from proclaiming the gospel. Do not let Satan insert lies in your head that you were unworthy to be a mouthpiece for Christ. Remember Jesus' first missionary. Remember Matthew, the tax collector. Remember Saul, the persecutor of the church. But remember, above all, that God has approved you. And if he has approved you, well, then he has entrusted you with the gospel. And if the king has entrusted you with the gospel, well, then you're called to speak on behalf of the king. And what's the word you speak on behalf of the king? Will you speak the king's saving message, how people can find life into him, how people can find life in his name. So I would encourage you, thinking about your past, do not let that hinder you. Don't let that hinder you from making the name of Jesus known. If you'll remember, if you've been saved by Christ, you have been entrusted with the gospel. And the natural overflow of that is, so we speak. Well, after Paul talking about his credentials, he then moves to defend his ambition and goal of his apostolic ministry. Well, we come to our very last point, but it's our longest point, so it's not over yet. We come to the second point, Paul's apostolic aim. Let's continue in verse 4. So we speak not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never use flattery speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Remember, Paul is defending his conduct in Thessalonica so that this church will continue to stand firm in the Lord. And right here, Paul gives them this monumental statement that really undergirds his entire ministry. It's like he unveils his secret sauce, the key to success, his secret ingredient, the very bullseye of his ministry. What is it, you might ask? Well, that he lives his life before an audience of one. Look with me at verse 4 again. So we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our heart. You see, Paul rightly understood people to be very small and God to be very big. His commitment was to honor God above everything. It's not that he was driven to displease people. No, his aim was to please God, and that superseded all things. And in thinking about this, for Paul, it was both very freeing and very sobering. Both freeing and sobering. And I want to flesh out both of those points. Well, this was freeing. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels. I feel like I say that every week. I have a lot of them. But one is Mark 12, 14. And you see, these Pharisees and Herodians were trying to trap Jesus. And they opened up their question with this. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. 
I'm pretty positive that they weren't intentionally trying to compliment Jesus right here, but they surely do. You see, Jesus, they're saying, you don't care what anyone thinks. You teach the way of God truthfully. And it's so true, and Jesus' enemies could even recognize that. Like Paul, Jesus lived his life for the Father's approval and for the Father's approval alone. He lived before an audience of one. He didn't care what others thought about him, and it freed him up to serve the Father. And Paul did the same thing, and he warns us in Galatians 1.10 about those who fear man. He says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul makes it crystal clear Pleasing people is antithetical to pleasing God. Well, sadly, I think we see bad fruits of churches that desire to please man rather than God all across the country. You know, for a lot of them, they seem to start well. They seem to be like Jesus at first, not caring what anyone thinks, teaching the way of truth. But over time, God starts to become significantly smaller and man starts to become significantly bigger. And what are some of the bad fruits of this? I think we could all probably say, you know, a dozen of them, you know, each of us. But I think a couple of them is they start to change the message of the gospel. Man, you quit saying hard things. You stop talking about the exclusivity of Christ. You stop talking about the infallibility of the Bible. You stop preaching about penal substitutionary atonement. You stop telling people that the wrath of God will fall on those who do not know Christ. You stop preaching hard things. You start preaching this moral therapeutic gospel. Will you also start to change your music? Less of these tried and tested theologically rich hymns to new Christian contemporary songs that could easily be sung about Jesus or your boyfriend. Who actually knows? Will you also start to capitulate to the changing culture, accepting that sexual sin is not sin? You also start to capitulate in the way that you can define your own gender. And if women want to preach, if they want to serve as elders, who in the world is stopping them? Will you also start to be enslaved by everyone's complaints? Every piece of feedback isn't filtered by the Bible. No, it's immediately put into practice. The minority starts to lead. And where does this all begin? Well, it all begins, I think, with churches serving people rather than God. And brothers and sisters, the effects are devastating, and we are seeing the collapse of healthy churches all around us. In Christ Fellowship, I do want to say it's not just whole churches that fall into this trap. No, it starts with individuals. And if we are honest with ourselves, many of us are sitting in this room right now saying that we actually do have a tendency to fear man. And I want to be honest with y'all, I am one of those people. But why is that? What is it about people that we fear? Why do we tend to see people as big and God is small? What are we so scared of? Well, in getting down to the root here, I think for the majority of us, we fear rejection. This is a quote. It's a bit long, but I think it speaks to this exact issue. Ed Welch, in When People Are Big and God Is Small, writes this. He says, Sometimes 
We would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith, I imagine that most Christians would say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, even if it meant death. The threat of torture might make people think twice, but I think most Christians would acknowledge Christ. However, if making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor, or criticized, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. In other words, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked, appreciated, or respected. Man, that's a convicting quote. You see, many who struggle with the fear of man are afraid of rejection, that others might not like us, approve of us, or appreciate us. And sadly, man, this sin, it leads to isolation. It leads to constant anxiety, and it leads to questioning our every move. Did they like us? Did they not like us? Do they approve of us? Do they not approve of us? And we rise when people affirm us, and we fall when they don't. And worst of all, and this is what I think Paul's point is right here, it keeps us from sharing the gospel. This so we speak will never be a natural overflow, a necessary response if our desire is to please man. And I do want to say, I think we'll probably all still go on short-term mission trips. Like we'll go to different places and share the gospel, but in speaking with our closest family, our closest friends, our co-workers, that will never be in the cards. Why? Because those are the people that can reject us. Well, if you struggle with this, like me, brothers and sisters, I would love to talk to you. I think there's great men and women who would also love to counsel you here. But hear me out. It's contingent upon you taking that first step. Only, only you know that you struggle with this. Only you know the anxiety that you're feeling. And if that's the case, man, we would love for you to come forward. We would love to help you in any way we can. My prayer for us as Christ Fellowship is that we would kill the fear of man so that we can freely proclaim the gospel. Well, it was freeing, right? But it was also sobering. Why is Paul's commitment to honor God above all things also sobering? Well, it was sobering because look at the text. It is God who examines our hearts. You see, Paul aimed to please God because he knew that he would have to give an account to this omniscient God. Interestingly, the word examine in the Greek is the exact same word as approve, but it's not in the perfect tense. No, it's in the present tense. In giving his defense, Paul calls God as a witness to his integrity. It's like he's saying, God has examined and approved me in the past, and he's still examining and approving me even today. God is examining my ministry. He knows for sure what's going on in my heart, and I'm telling you that I'm living not to please man, but to please God. Well, friends, it is a sobering reminder that the omniscient God is examining our hearts at this very moment. If you're here and not a Christian, we would love to, we're, we're thankful that you're here. We, we all want to say welcome. We are so happy that you joined us here this Sunday morning. As I was thinking about this, I was, uh, a thought just came to my mind. I wonder if you've ever thought about God examining your heart. 
You see, it's kind of like he has an x-ray on you all of the time, on your inner thoughts, on your motives, on your deepest desires. The things you've thought and you've never divulged to anyone. Friend, I want to tell you that God heard every word. And you cannot hide anything from him. No, he constantly examines you, even right here again at this very moment. He sees everything. He knows everything. And my question to you, in light of this, if he came to you right now and it's judgment day and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? I don't think you could say anything. Why is that? Because you know deep inside that you are not holy. I've been reading Deuteronomy in my quiet time this past week. And it struck me in chapter 23, the sheer fact that the unholy may never enter in the Lord's assembly. See, God cannot dwell with anyone or anything that has any blemish. And friend, I want to tell you that if you have sinned one single time, you will never enter into the Lord's assembly. Why? Because God cannot dwell with the unholy. My son, I read this book to him called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. We read it at least once a week. And it's this great book that talks about our presence with the Lord and how God's presence started in the Garden of Eden. But once Adam and Eve sinned, the book says over and over this line, and this line always sticks out with me. It says, because of your sin, you can't come in. And that's us. Because of our sin, we cannot come into the presence of the Lord. It is impossible. Why? Because God is holy. And even with the tabernacle, there was this massive curtain there. And what? They could not approach God. Because of their sin, they could not come in. But the glorious truth in the Gospels is that Jesus died. The one without blemish went to the cross to die for those who have blemishes. And when he died on the cross, the text reads that the curtain right of the temple tore from top to bottom. Why? Well, now, if we place our faith in Christ, even amidst our sin, we can come in. We can go to the Lord. Because of Jesus' death, we can be with him. But it starts with repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in the risen Christ. And so this morning, I pray that you would remember, because of your sin, you cannot go before the Lord on your own. But with Jesus Christ, oh, he welcomes you. So I pray that you would talk to any member about the gospel. They would love to talk about you. Well, remember that Paul used his authority for God's glory and the good of others. And so we continue in verse 5 to see that Paul's aim in pleasing God was shown in his care for others. Paul did not come to Thessalonica to be served. No, he came to serve others. He wasn't after his own gain. No, he wanted others to gain eternal life. He wanted to give so that others could find salvation in Jesus. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. These will be the last verses that we'll be in this morning. We never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't see glory from people, either from you or from others. 
Now, Paul, he wasn't after an ego booster. He wasn't after a bank booster. And he certainly wasn't after a crowd booster. Interestingly, Paul defends himself first against flattery and greed, which I think we can deduce that there were wealthy and influential people in the body. But Paul doesn't care about their bank statements. He doesn't care about their social statuses. He never wanted a boomerang boomerang effect that what goes out has to come back to him. And how do we know? Well, in one single verse, Paul calls two witnesses to testify to his character. Look with me again at verse 5. He says, as you know. Well, the Thessalonians could testify. And God is our witness. God himself could testify. Who could bring a charge against Paul abusing his authority? Nobody. The Thessalonians knew it and God himself. Paul's whole ministry was never for his own selfish gain. No, it was for the good of others that the kingdom of God might advance in the world. Well, I want to look at each of these motives individually and give a quick application for us today. Look with me at the first one. Paul wasn't after an ego booster. We never used flattery speech, he writes. Paul did not use flattery speech. He wasn't complimenting other people as a trick or strategy to win favor or gain power over the people. Aristotle distinguishes between friends and flatterers, and he says this about the flatterer. It's kind of funny. It's also kind of sad. He says this, and when I catch sight of a man, this is the flatterer speaking, and when I catch sight of a man who is rich and thick, I at once get my hooks into him. If this money bags happens to say anything, I praise him vehemently and express my amazement, pretending to find delight in his words. You see, we see this in business practices all of the time. People try to gain accounts. They try to win favor with their bosses by giving them lavish gifts and trying to entertain them, sometimes in very immoral ways. But the text says Paul never did anything remotely like this. A commentator writing on this said, As communicators of the truth of God and those who sincerely cared for the well-being of their hearers, the apostles never flattered their audience in an attempt to gain something from themselves. Did you hear what he said? In a commitment for God and the well-being of others, flattering speech was never on Paul's tongue. Well, so what's the application for us this morning? Well, flattering conversations keep us from having meaningful conversations. Brothers and sisters, if we're committed to God and the well-being of others, that probably means we'll have to initiate some very hard conversations with those around us. You see, you might see somebody heading down a very harmful and destructive path, or you might see somebody caught in unrepented sin. It's actually not helpful at all for that person if all you do is encourage them. Think about your kids for a second. What if you never corrected them? What if you never gave them constructive criticism? What if you never called them out for their sin? Well, they would turn out to be a literal living nightmare. Why is that? Because you didn't actually care for them, and all you did was puff them up with pride. Christ Fellowship, there are times when we need to initiate very hard conversations with the people around us. It's difficult. It's not enjoyable. And sometimes people do not respond well. Nevertheless, if we are committed to God and his people, we will shun flattering conversations and attempt to have meaningful ones. 
Well, Paul wasn't after an ego booster. He also wasn't after a bank booster. And Paul says this. He says, or had greedy motives, God is our witness. The literal reading of this verse is, nor do we put on a mask to cover up our greed. Paul's face didn't say one thing while his heart said another. Paul actually says in verse 9, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. And he kind of says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. And I want to read this. He says, We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul was so concerned about preaching the gospel, so concerned about the gospel going forth unhindered, that he did not take anything for the people of Thessalonica, and he's reminding them of this. He was not greedy. No, his aim was for God's glory and their good. Paul never marketed God's message for his own profit. No, his joy was always for others. And I just want to read this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20. Probably my favorite verse in the whole book. But this is what Paul says. He says, For who is our hope? Who is our joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. No, Paul boasted in others. He was never after his own well-being. Well, I want to say this. I feel like I'm on a broken record right here. But we are an incredibly generous church. And I praise God for that reality. The Lord has blessed us to be a blessing to others. And I think we saw this so evidently in the fact that we gave to CareNet um, in the Walk for Life. Man, praise God for that. But you probably know this. This isn't new news to you. But if Christ's fellowship supports any organization or missionary, the elders go through this extensive process to affirm their faithfulness to God and others. You see, the elders have this specific process that we work through to determine who we will and who we will not support. And as I was thinking about this, I wonder if your family has a process that you go through to determine who you will and will not support. The reason I say that, because you are very generous, and I have to believe that you are giving to missionaries and organizations outside of this church. And if you are giving to others, I do pray that you filter every missionary and organization through some type of scriptural process. And if you ever need help thinking of what that process might be, the elders would love to help you. You see, we always want you to do good for others and the kingdom, but we must be aware of our responsibility in partnering with missionaries and organizations. I want to read y'all from 2 John. I think this verse is so helpful in thinking about ourselves tethering with other missionaries and organizations. 2 John says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Do you hear that? Even if you let him into your home, even if you greet him, you're sharing in his evil works. Let's be diligent about examining anyone who comes our way asking for support. Well, Paul wasn't after an ego booster. He wasn't after a bank booster. And finally, he wasn't after a crowd booster. Look with me at verse 6. 
And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? He was the king second in command. Thus, he demanded everyone to bow down to him in the courtyard and in the streets of Susa. Haman was tethered to the king, so he demanded worship from the people. Now, Paul, he was certainly connected to Jesus. He was an apostle for crying out loud, a man who had seen the risen Christ, a man who had been cast up into the third heaven, whatever that means, and a man that um, had planted multiple churches. Yet Paul was not after a crowd. He was not after his own glory. And I think if anybody in the first century could have sought that glory, it was Paul. Our English word for seek, I feel like, isn't quite forceful enough. It's more of a demand or require of praise. You see, Paul could have easily rolled into Thessalonica with this, his apostolic credentials, demanding honor, prestige, and fame. He could have easily gathered a crowd to speak about his special relationship with the risen Christ, his heroic journeys and visions from above. He could have easily worked a crowd where they walked away thinking, Man, how awesome is Paul? Paul could have easily um, just worked them where they walked away thinking, Paul is crushing this. That guy is amazing. I want to be like Paul. But that was not Paul's MO. And as a side comment, I want to quickly say that if you hear sermons from preachers and your only thought in walking away is how great that man that was preaching that sermon is, there should be yellow flag after yellow flag rolling in your head. Well, Paul's aim was not gathering a crowd. No, his, Paul's aim in gathering a crowd was to tell them how great Christ is. His desire was, was for them to walk away glorying in the risen Christ. And brothers and sisters, I know that you know this, but Christ will not share his glory with anyone. You cannot be a servant of Christ and a slave to honor, prestige, and fame. One of the saddest verses, I think, in all of the gospel is found in John 12 when rulers, right, of the, of the Israelites have seen Jesus' miracles. They've seen his teachings, and they even, in some senses, believe in him. But John writes this about them. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. The love of praise is all-consuming. And John teaches us right here that it actually kept people from going to heaven. But Paul, like John the Baptist, wasn't after other people's praise. No, he wanted to decrease so that Jesus might increase. He wanted to benefit others so that God might be glorified. Well, my last application for us this morning is this. It's just a question. I wonder if someone were to scan your social media post over the last six months. Would they see someone who lives for the praise of God or the praise of others? Think about this with me. Whenever something good happens to you, do you immediately turn to social media to let the world know? If you do, I'm not saying that's inherently sinful. But my question is for you, why do you do that? You see, I think social media can tempt us into this cycle of, yes, we want Jesus to increase, 
but we want to increase alongside of him. We start to crave the likes, the comments, and the shares that happens when maybe we post scripture verses, mission trip pictures, sermons we watch, or books that we read. We can easily start to fall into the trap where we begin to love human praise more than we love the praise of God. So again, I pose the question, I wonder if someone were to scan your social media post over the last six months, would they see someone who lives for the praise of man or for the praise of God? Only you can answer that question. But if you're sitting here unsure, it might be something worth investigating. Well, in conclusion, as we've seen, Paul's whole ministry was never for his own selfish gain. No, it was for the good of others that the kingdom of God might advance in the world around him. And I pray that would be our MO as well. I pray that we would use our influence that we have, whether it's in our families, whether it's here at the church, whether it's in our jobs for the good of others and the glory of God, not for our own selfish gain, no, but for others. Let me pray.